Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 61 for December 15th, 2011. Yep, so we're doing Star Trek Ongoing by IDW. Yes. Uh, more good IDW stuff, patterned after the 2009 continuity and cast. This is great. But utilizing the stories from the 1960s TV show. <laughs> uh, good and bad. I-, I like the idea, but after reading three issues of it, I do kind of see where this might get a little tedious. But I think they're peppering it in with enough new stuff to, that yeah. will keep me coming. There are some new aspects in the story. But they they are very faithful, at least so far, to the two episodes that they're um, they're redoing. Right. So issue number one and two is where no man has gone before, and issue number three is the first part of their Galileo Seven adaptation. Right. Exactly. So interesting that they chose those two. Where no man has gone before makes perfect sense. Uh, the first Kirk pilot uh, makes perfect sense that they would want to redo that one as the first issue of the comic. Interesting that they went to the Galileo 7 episode. So, continuity-wise, how big a jump was that? I don't know my first season original series all that well. I mean, they were both first season. So, uh, I mean, there were definitely episodes in between those two. No two ways about it. But I don't remember off the top of my head. uh, Ninth episode? Tenth episode? I don't know. Something like that. Okay. So... So I guess we're not going to get the Salt Vampire episode. <laughs> <laughs> Which, interestingly enough, I think the Salt Vampire episode... Was that the was that the third one shown, but it was the first one filmed with uh, DeForest Kelly? Uh, maybe. it was. I think it was the it was third like one that. filmed, but it was the first one shown. Oh, I thought it was the other way around. Hmm. Okay. No, because it, it was the very first episode ever shown of Star Trek on, on air. Oh, okay. So the I got it backwards. Trap. I got it backwards. Yeah, cool. so just just looking real quick, I went ahead and looked it up. Galileo 7 was episode 17. Oh, wow, it's way in. That's including The Cage. So I guess oh, 16. If but you still, that it's one. in the teens. Right. So, yeah, they, they skipped quite a bit. It. Yeah, but it's not like there was a lot of... I mean, it was pretty much the reset button generation, you know, True. back in those times. So a lot of it was kind of... You know, it didn't really matter that much, but still, that is a pretty big gap. They skipped uh, what? What are girls made of? The androids episode. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Damn! How could they have done that? I know, man. I was really looking forward to seeing that one. Right. Anyways, all right. Well, let's uh, jump into the books if if you're ready. Oh, please do, and you have the honor of doing number one. I do indeed. So let me open it up so I can get the credits. So this is Star Trek Ongoing number one, uh, Where No Man Has Gone Before, part one, uh, released on September 2011. The writer is Mike Johnson. The artist is Stephen Molnar. The colorist, John Roach. 
letterer Neil Utaki, based on the original teleplay Where No Man Has Gone Before by Samuel A. Peoples, and then creative consultant Robert Orca, and the editor is Scott Dunbar. I think that's Orky. What did I say? Orca? Orca, as in the whale. Oh, yeah, Orky. Of course, I I could be wrong too, but yeah, you're probably at the end. You're right, I'm sure. Okay. As with all IDWs, there's a slew of covers, so I'll quickly tell you what they are. Cover A is a painting by Tim Broadstreet, I believe it is. I'll look it up later. But uh, it's a painting. That's right, it is Tim Bradstreet. Bradstreet, okay. Uh, It's a painting of the whole crew. Kirk and Spock are standing within the Enterprise logo with the new Enterprise down below them. And to the left of the logo is Ahura, and to the right shows McCoy, Scotty, Sulu, and Chekhov. All kind of layered on top of each other. It's a really nice painting. Cover B is a weird half-half shot. Uh, One side is Kirk's face and body. On the other side is Spock's face and body, and they're kind of melded into one person with two halves. So kind of like a two-faced look. And then there is four different photo covers with one or two cast members in each cover. So they really wanted people to buy multiple copies of this same issue, which I'm not a big fan of. No, but it's not the first time IDW does that kind of stuff. Oh, no. it's it, Everybody, every comic publisher is guilty of it. But all the... Um, the non-Marvel, non-DC, and non-Dark Horse, uh, everybody other than those three seem to be really guilty of it. So, <laughs> so there's like Dynamite, there's Avatar, there's um, IDW. I mean, they are really guilty of pumping out the same issue, multiple covers. And some of them are really bad at it in that they release them on different months. So you go in there and you're like, oh, new copy. Grab it, take it home, and you're like, I've read this one. So, anyways. That's a trick. Hmm. Exactly, and it's a mean trick because they're (laughs) $3 a pop. Yeah. (laughs) All right, so uh, back to the story. So it starts off with Scotty's engineering log informing us that it has been ages since the events of Star Trek XI. Uh, He complains that the ship is a mess of broken parts and burned out uh, equipment after their escape from the black hole, but admires how she still looks pretty on the outside. Scotty is seen working on various parts with the help of the diminutive Kinzer. Uh, Scotty hands Kinzer a broken part and states that he's going to go talk to the captain and walks out. In the rec room, we see Kirk in the middle of a 3D chess game with Gary Mitchell. Gary beats the captain, and Kirk orders a rematch immediately, but Gary declines. He states that Kirk should play with Spock, but Kirk states that Spock has turned him down, speculating that he's still upset about his methods of beating the Kobayashi Maru. So Spock breaks into their repartee to inform Kirk that they have picked up a distress beacon and that he is needed on the bridge. Uh, With that, Kirk Mitchell and crewman Kelso head to the nearest turbo lift and head off to the bridge. En route, Kirk is teased by the other two that it seems like it was only yesterday that they were helping Kirk with his homework and that they were actually a year ahead of him, and now he's made it all the way to captain. Mitchell seems a little resentful that they are only the backups to Sulu and Chekhov. Kirk chastises them for this, stating that 
those two have earned their positions. But he softens the blow by telling him that he needs the best on his bridge, whether they're backups or not. On the bridge, Spock informs Kirk that the message is coming from a remote beacon of the USS Valiant. Spock starts to listen to the fragmented recorded logs. He hears about Valiant's brush with the galactic barrier. He hears that six crewmen were killed, and then something about ESP, and then the order to self-destruct. Knowing the Valiant's troubles, Kirk still orders the mission to continue, and the Enterprise enters the barrier itself. The ship is rocked with turbulence, with consoles exploding all over the bridge. Uhura is thrown about, but Spock is able to help her up. Mitchell is seen knocked out on the floor. Scotty is able to take over navigation and get the Enterprise back into known space. That's when Kirk checks on his friend Gary, and when he flips him over, Gary opens his eyes and they're all silvery. Dun, dun, dun. All right, so sometime later, the Enterprise is limping through space, and we hear Kirk's logs that reports that nine crew members died in the uh, the brush with the galactic barrier. And he states that Scotty is working hard to get the warp power back up. Kirk, McCoy, and Spock have a briefing to catch up on events. Uh, the doctor informs them that Gary is physically fine and that he has been reading everything in the computers uh, that he can get his eyes on for the last 12 hours. Spock explains that all 10 of the crew members that were affected uh, had shown evidence in the past of psychic abilities, with Gary outscoring them all. The trio start to make their way to sickbay. En route, Kirk asks the, what happened to the psychologist Daner, why she wasn't there. Then McCoy informs him that she recalled her transfer due to something that happened between the two of them a long time ago, which they never go into detail about. They finally arrive in sickbay and see Mitchell using the force and moving all sorts of things around the room, uh, not limiting himself to just a glass of water. But he does have a glass of water, and he takes a sip. In addition to his telekinesis, Mitchell is also shown to have insight into issues with the ship. He knows the exact part that is burned out without ever leaving the room. Kirk orders him to bed rest until they can find out what's going on. In the briefing room, Scotty informs them that the warp drive is completely fried. Chekhov informs them that there's a nearby planet called Delta Vega, which was once a lithium cracking outpost, uh, and it's only a few days away on impulse. Ahura informs them she was able to get another log out of the beacon that references that a crewman on the Valiant also had powers similar to what Gary's experiencing. Kirk orders the crew to make their way to Delta Vega and dismisses them. Once alone, Spock informs the captain that Gary Mitchell is no longer himself and that he attempted a mind meld, but he found no consciousness of any kind. He closes his argument, stating that the only way to prevent the Enterprise from ending up like the Valiant is to kill Gary. The last panel shows Gary opening his eyes with completely silver eyes, with a huge grin on his face, as if he can hear Spock's comments to be continued. Yes, the threat. The friend, the best friend, turns into the biggest threat to the ship and crew. Yeah, too bad Daner's not there to keep him company. Yes, and of course, what's going to happen, because Daner was the one that helped Kirk in the original pilot... 
She's not around now, so what's going to happen with Kirk at the end? Mm-hmm. We'll have to find out next issue. We'll have to wait I, a whole month to find out. Or, you know, another half hour, 20 <laughs> minutes. Either way, we're going to find out. Yeah, so uh, what did you think of this? I know this is your all-time favorite episode of the original series. It is my favorite. Um, uh, of course, it's kind of a neck-and-neck thing with City on the Edge of Forever, but this, this does eke out because I like the action. The comic's good. I mean, it's a good comic. Artistry is great, as always. People that, that did it are uh, very much sticking to the script in a lot of ways, but making some tweaks here and there, too. And the tweaks make sense, which I like, which we'll talk more about in a few minutes. Uh, overall, I, I, I like the book. I just hope that IDW... I, I just hope that this isn't all IDW does with this series, which is just remaking original Trek episodes. Right, and obviously, since we're recording this in December, uh, only three books of this series have come out so far. Right. And they're all adaptations. But I have heard uh, or read that Eventually, they'll start going off into um, original stories peppered in with more of the adaptations of later episodes. Yeah, I, I'd be, that'd be great. I'd be cool with that. I'd like that better. Right. Yeah, I'll admit that I'm not a big fan of adapted comic books from movies or TV shows. Right. Um, I didn't buy the... Uh, Star Trek Eleven adaptation when they first came out, I wasn't really that interested in reading it because I'd already seen the movie. I have eventually bought it and read it, but <laughs> but uh, I just I wanted it. But you know, I I eventually bought it just because I wanted to see the artwork uh, of the ship because I really like the the layout of the new Enterprise. Right. But uh, but I think this one is. I'm liking this one better than the movie adaption because it is a little different. It, it changes a few things to make it a little, you know, makes it fresh. Interesting how they didn't really put the name of the story front and center like I was expecting. So, Where No Man Has Gone Before, we know it's an adaptation of that. It doesn't say anything about that on the first, uh, on any of the, the covers. Or at least, the, I've only seen two of the covers. I haven't seen all the ones you have. But none of them say that I've got, which is, uh, you know, the first one you describe, which I think is probably the most common one, and then the half and half between uh, Spock and Kirk. I assume the other ones also didn't say the title. Yeah, no, the other ones were incredibly uh, generic looking. They have yeah. a black bar at the top and a black bar at the <coughs> bottom, and then a picture of the crew member in the middle. Okay. Um, the only place where I really see where No Man's Gone Before is on the credits page. Where they say, you know, based on the original teleplay, right. where No Man's Gone Before by Samuel A. Peoples, and and I think that's the only place I've seen the title. So it is. It, they're more. It, we'll see in issue three. They're a little bit more prominent about the name of uh, the Galileo Seven well, issues. Well, only only on one cover. On the other two, on the other covers, um, it's nowhere on there. Oh, okay. Well, at least a little bit more then. Uh, at least on one cover, but because uh, I was kind of looking around, it's like, okay, I know this is a remake, but you know, where's the title? It doesn't, I don't see it anywhere. Uh, and then I finally spotted it. Yeah, so. I, I do miss that. I noticed that too. That there's not really a title page at all. It just goes right. straight into the story, and there's never even like a big. Well, I guess there is a big splash page, but it's just a picture of the Enterprise. Right. And it's beautiful. It's it pretty on the outside, indeed, Scotty. <laughs> and I didn't know the what's what's the little guy's name. His name is Kinzer. Kinzer. I 
did, did he, I didn't know that. Did, did he call him Kinzer on the in the movie? No, they never call him that. Okay, but and, his his name's been in other things. Okay, because I don't see him, his name referred to in this. Nope. Right. Okay. I was. I, I figured you got it from somewhere. Just never heard his name before. I don't know if it's mentioned in the novel by. Um, oh man, who wrote that? Oh, the uh, adaptation. Yeah. Oh, I'm having. Uh, a... It was. It was a good author too. Um, good sci-fi author, as I recall. Yeah, Alan Dean Foster. There you that's, go. Alan that's Dean what it was. Foster. Yeah. yeah. And, and I didn't read the adaptation, but I listened to the audiobook of it. And I do not remember them mentioning it in the audiobook. Did they not? I didn't. I did not. I do not remember hearing that it mentioned the audiobook. But well, aside I, from that, and the uh, comic books, and this one, I think that's his only appearances. Right. Actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, I don't know if you remember this, but back when Star Trek Eleven first came out, there was a E Insurance Flash animation game that had the E Insurance girl working with Kinzer to fight off the Delta Vega slugs. <laughs> <laughs> I never saw that. Yeah, it was. I remember I went to it just because I saw a little commercial and it said, you know, check out uh, einsurance.com for, you know, clips of Star Trek 11. Uh huh. And that's what it was. It was this flash animation game. <laughs> I, I, should, I should try to pull that up and see if it's still there. I'm sure they right. took it down by now. Probably. They'd probably have to keep on paying for it if they kept it up. Yeah. Anyway. But, anyways. I kind of like how they do have the Scotty thing at the beginning of here as kind of a bridge between the movie and the first issue of the uh, of the comic series. So I, I kind of like that. I, I did too. Yeah. And uh, I, I like the way Scotty's depicted here. He's not depicted as the Jimmy Doohan Scotty who I can't see making all these little barbs uh, like like this Scotty does. I mean. Oh, yeah. Lots of jokes. Right. I mean, yeah. Scotty was always a little mischievous in the TV show, but not not like some of the things he says in here, especially in the third issue, where he's like, well, we'll get into it. But he's talking about how he's glad to be on the mission because he's ready for some, you know, um, uh, recreation around type thing. Recreation, there you go. But yeah. just the way the way they write it, it's like you can hear Simon Pegg say these words. It's, right. It's really well written. Yeah. And then the joke, uh, as he's doing his, uh, his log, and he says, does anyone actually listen to these things? Yeah, exactly. It's like, yes, I've wondered that myself. <laughs> well, even the personal logs, I mean, <clears throat> are those private, or do those eventually get released to Starfleet? I don't know. Uh, I would think they're personal, uh, except maybe after you die like a president or something. Right. I just always thought that was funny, because, you know, you'll have, like, Troy or somebody recording personal log, and I'm like, is this like a diary? Some <laughs> sort of official document that'll get turned in. I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was odd, though, that the idea that Starfleet would send the Enterprise out on a long-range mission to the edge of the galaxy without all the black hole damage repaired. And there was quite a, bit, quite a bit of damage, apparently, as Scotty's talking about. I mean, it just seemed a little irresponsible to me. And what was the big rush anyway? I thought what happened to the Valiant happened a long time ago. Uh, so it wasn't like they were rushing right out there to see what happened to the Valiant. It just seemed a little inconsistent when I thought about it a little bit more. Well, and you don't know how long it's been 
right? Because in that log, it says it's been ages since the events of Star Trek Eleven, but they're still doing repairs. It, it you know, it, it seemed odd. I mean, how, how long is ages? He, he actually did say it's been ages, not it seems like it's been ages. He's actually saying it's been ages. Hmm, right. That's interesting. So, yeah, you, you don't know how long that's been, and, and you know, has it been a, quite a while, and he's still changing out the parts one at a time? Right. While they're off doing other things, you, it's just not clear. Right. Right. Like he says, you think they would have been in there for a refit to get the damn thing fixed right, especially if you're going all the way to the edge of the galaxy. I mean, right. that seems like it's pretty far, and you're not likely to have much backup in case you get a flat. So, Well, yes. And, and especially, well, of course, they don't, they didn't know they're going to encounter the energy barrier at the edge. But uh, turns out that they get a bit of a rough ride again. Although they don't talk all, well, yeah. I mean, they don't go in a lot of detail, but obviously the ship lo- loses its warp capabilities, so... Right, and, and, and I was never quite sure if they were trying to imply that the reason why that warp dilithium crystals or whatever it was that uh, broke, was that due to it already having damage and then the barrier broke it again or broke it further? I don't know. Or was it like it was in the original series where you know the ship, I assumed, was you know tip-top shape at the beginning of that episode and then Brand it hit the barrier ship. and broke? Brand new ship. Don't want to get any scratches on it. Does he actually say that? Uh, I th- I think Pike says that. Yes. Oh, it's a new I, I, it's a I new ship, in... Spock. Oh. No, what, what... no, I meant in where no man has gone before. Oh, in the original. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm, yeah, I'm no, way I off. Meant, I mean, no, I it's an old the ship series. then. Yeah, 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 yeah. I got you. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Wasn't following <laughs> what you're saying properly. It's uh, and another thing. Uh, I don't I don't recall hearing them saying the word dilithium. Definitely when they do finally fix the problem and Scotty's talking to Kelso uh, over the communicator, uh, he does refer to the crystals. But I don't see anybody saying dilithium. Well, in this book, Chekhov says that it's a lithium cracking facility. And and that's Ah, when Chekhov kind of rolls. I mean, that's when Scotty rolls his eyes and says, lithium, we might as well be using stone tablets or something. He says when... Chekhov recommends the lithium thing. He says, lithium cracking? Why not just give me some glue and string? So, <laughs> and I don't, know, I don't know the original series that well to say that was a line from the original series or a no. line from here. No. Because no. I, I can it see was... Simon Pegg saying that. I can't necessarily see uh, Jimmy Duhan saying that line. No. It was always dilithium crystals. And uh, so are they insinuating that lithium lithium crystals are old hat and dilithium is the new thing, or there's something else going on? I think in the original series it was also lithium, and was I it? always took it as, as what you just said, that lithium was an older, an older fuel source. Okay. And by the way, it shouldn't be fuel source. Or whatever it is. Matter-antimatter is the fuel source. Somehow the dilithium crystals are used to focus the energy into something useful. You knew, you knew what I meant. Uh, okay, sorry. I didn't... Well, I didn't... I, I, I had the words you said to go by, but... Okay. Yeah, I got you. I just really hope they don't get into this dilithium crystal garbage. I, I doubt it. 
because I you know what you you know how I feel about that. I know what you feel about that because I've said it before. And I won't say it again. No, now, I'm hoping the movie is so good. I'm I'm. You know, this is December of 2011, and right. we're really hearing a lot of buzz about, you know, a lot of the actors have come forward saying that they've read the script, and, you know, they talk about how amazing it's going to be, and, and I'm I'm really buying into the hype and getting excited about, uh, getting excited about it. Yeah. I, no matter what they put up there, I'm going to love it. However, I don't want to be loving it, but still kind of disappointed. So, I wanted to be all good, like the first one was. Now, if they did a adaptation of Space Seed or something like that, would you be upset? Or? I, would, I would be upset. I would think you're cheaping out. Also, you saw what Simon Pegg said about the script? All I saw was that he said that it was amazing. I didn't see any details. Uh, he said that it was – he used the word original. Okay. Or like, like, it's a very original story. Or He used the word original. And he also said that nowhere in the script did he w- read the word Khan, right. the name Khan. Yeah, I, I was pretty sure that that was you know fanboy stuff. You know that that they were talking about how uh, what's his name? Um, oh, that actor B- was, was, be... was cast as Khan. Right, right, right. But actually, maybe not. Well, yeah, and then he dropped out anyway. So yeah, okay, so right. But did anybody from the production company say Khan? Supposedly, like you... somebody said it, but hmm. everything that I've read that said J.J. Abrams says he always said it's not Khan. He said it's oh, never okay. been Khan, but you know it was always these other sources saying that it right. was. So again, I was kind of taking that with a grain of salt. Okay, cool. All right, so uh, back to this book. So did you like the way Gary Mitchell and Kelso were kind of shoehorned back into the story since obviously they weren't in the movie? I was okay with it, but it, it it does it does very much call into question on multiple levels uh, how quickly Kirk and the crew, a very fresh Academy crew mostly, were able to stay and and be in their senior positions. Well, at the end of the movie, it was pretty evident that they had command of the ship and that they were keeping those positions. Well, okay, uh, I knew that about Kirk and okay. Spock. Well, okay, but Spock's a, a Spock is a more experienced officer. True. So I'm I'm not Chekhov is he's like 17 or something. <laughs> so is Wesley, and and he got to fly the ship for a long time. I know, but he was never <laughs> okay. What was he ensign? Well, he was, okay, he was acting ensign. Acting ensign because he hadn't gone through Starfleet Academy. And right. whole, don't get me started on that. <laughs> he shouldn't have had the uniform, and he shouldn't been on the on the bridge all the time. I agree with original Picard. And so the softy he became. Anyway, well, at least Chekhov is a, a full blown ensign at the beginning of that uh, that that yeah. movie. Yep. 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 I mean, he went through the academy, so right. No, I I'm with you, but I you know that they're you know that they weren't going to demote them and and say come back in five years and then you can have <laughs> right. And it is better to have some some people with some experience, but these guys are only a year ahead. Right. They're they're so, in the class that that. Kirk would have been if he started, you know, like in the prime timeline, he started right out of high school or whatever. Right. And in the new timeline, he took that year off fighting, right. fighting in bars and having sex with animals. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he and and animals. Right, right, right. Okay. Not not only animals. Right, right. That was his line. Right. Anyways, 
So I, I liked how they kind of made a nod to that, and, and in the next issue, we'll see more of you know Kirk's academic career, right. which is a little different than what it was in the uh, original series. Right. But uh, I did like how Gary was legs. in here and and uh, Kelso and and how they were kind of resentful that they weren't the um, main helmsman and Helmsman. navigator. Yeah, I agreed. I mean, if somebody was put in that position, you'd you'd have some resentment. Right. So that was good that they were displaying that. Love the full page beauty shot of the Enterprise on page two. It is nice. It's quite nice. Pretty on the outside. It, it almost looks like. The detailed little outlining on the bottom of the saucer section, it looks almost like it's like like it's a rust red color or something. Uh, oh, yeah. So, so from a color standpoint, I was a little bit surprised about the color, but uh, it, it's, it's a great shot. And then it's got some kind of nebulae in the background, given yeah, it's a it, purple color. It's very nice. Right. It could have been just a reflection of that purple nebulae thing. Oh, is that what it is? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I can't, yeah, yeah. By the way, speaking of the Enterprise, and I'm, I, this is a digression, but I think it's important. I'll, we'll get right back on track. I just went to Blaster, which is sci-fi channels, kind of like website or whatever, of news and that kind of stuff for people like us. And they had a gift guide, a Christmas gift guide for some of the 15 most outrageously priced replicas available. And one of them... It's the link said uh, Enterprise, and it's like, oh, oh, that's the that that's the Enterprise model that they that that uh, Master Replicas or I forgot what the company was were uh, were marketing. It's like, okay, that's fine. So I found the link and looked at it, and it's no, it's the new Enterprise, and this is a highly detailed, very cool looking uh, physical replica, uh, which is interesting because they didn't have a physical replica of the Enterprise to produce the movie. It was all computer-generated. So it's kind of cool that uh, this thing exists. Guess what the price is? Uh, $3,000. Ooh, good guess. 5000 uh, Or, well, 4500 I think it was 4500 Yeah. Which is like, oh, my God. <laughs> Isn't it like, is it like the four-foot one with all the lights and everything? Oh, there's multiple ones? Um, it's big. I, I did not read the specs to see exactly how big it is, but um, I don't think it's four foot, though. I saw one a while back, um, yeah. and it was it was like four feet from nose to tail. Wow. And it had all the lights and, and, and everything that looked really cool, and I don't remember it having a price. Well, I, I, I don't think it's that big, but quite frankly, who knows? Maybe it is. For 4500 bucks, you'd hope it'd be pretty good-sized. I didn't see it next to anything. I didn't see the specs, so I don't know how long it is. But it's got a very impressive base to it, and it's got lights all over the place, and um, it's gorgeous. I'll have to give it a look. Yeah, consider it. You know, maybe Christmas. Yeah, you know? Maybe I'll ask Santa for it. There you go. Ask Santa. The real Santa, not the uh, alien Santa <laughs> from uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. Oh, God, that was horrible. Issue number two. Don't, don't mention it. all right so back to the book um did you like the way the artwork was for all the main characters the the cast members um yeah well let me see is there any big complaints uh i think uh quinto looks very accurate i agree um there are times when when kirk looks kind of weird 
Yeah, he, he's um, the one that I had the problem with. Uh, yeah. Occasionally, he looked like a very, very young Hayden Christensen from Star ah! Wars. <laughs> And he didn't. He doesn't look like Chris Pine, and he just looks like he's like sixteen years old or something. Yeah, he does look really young. And then other times he looks spot on, and then other times he just seems off. And I, yeah. and, and uh, uh, I agree with that. I think Scotty definitely looks like Peg. Oh yeah, absolutely. I think that's good. And you don't really see McCoy all that much, but in general he looks accurate. I agree. And I thought that they did a good job with Gary. I think well, he looks like a, a not quite like the actor who played him in the original series. Yeah, he, but enough so that you can buy in that this could be an actor playing that actor kind of thing. Like <laughs> like these guys yeah. are actors playing other actors. Yeah, I, I agree because he does not look like Gary Lock. I mean, he looks kind of like Gary Lockwood, but you can tell he's not Gary Lockwood. Exactly. Uh, but it is interesting that they chose. Well, we'll we'll see this in the next issue. I'm going to mention it now. It's interesting that in the cover of the next issue, I mean, they actually use a... I mean, it, that's Gary Lockwood on the cover. Right, for issue number two. Issue number two. So I thought it was very interesting because when, when they put that photo in there of him... or actually, it's, a, it's, a, it's an artist's drawing, uh, but it's pretty photorealistic. Then you really know who that is. I mean, there's no two ways about it. That is, you know, that, that's uh, Mitchell. Right. I thought that was an interesting choice to put the real actor's image in there, but not in the rest of the, but not in the rest of the book. Yeah, but it, it's close. I thought it is close, but you can, but it's kind of, it's kind of like if you don't have the rights to the person's image, where you make it close, but not a hundred percent there, <laughs> so you don't get sued. Well, I, I was just like I said, I was chalking it up to this is an actor of today's age trying to play an actor of that. Era. Time, right. Okay, cool. And we'll get that more in issue number three with the introduction of Yeoman Rand. Oh, Yeoman Rand. Oh, Yeoman Rand. <laughs> now, I have one more comment, and it's it's about Daner. Uh-huh. I, I know that McCoy wasn't in the original pilot. Um, right. And so... So... Sh- if they really did have this convoluted past, and maybe that's why she was there and where no man has gone before, and why McCoy showed up after she was gone, but what are they talking about? That McCoy and her had a past, and it was enough that it kept her from transferring to the Enterprise. Exactly, because he has not been in Starfleet very long, and he's been—he was married the whole time, you know, for a good amount of time before he came over to Starfleet. So are they implying that they had some sort of romantic relationship in the past? I was kind of unclear on that. Well, they insinuated it, but there really wasn't much detail in what they insinuated, if you know what I mean. I mean, they completely left it open. Right. It really is just our imagination that's filling in the romantic thing. However, if you purposely don't transfer to a ship because somebody's on it, wouldn't I mean, you'd actually either have to really hate his guts for some non-romantic reason, or there was some kind of romantic thing going on. And who knows? They're doctors. I mean, maybe they met before. I mean, she's a psychiatrist, but maybe they met under, uh, you know, outside of Starfleet. Who knows? Right. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. But mm. it just seemed a little. Odd. Yeah, but 
odd, but I'm glad they did it because McCoy's in this one, right? So because the timelines are different, there's like a cause and effect kind of thing. Oh, McCoy's here in this picture. So, you know, it's like stepping on the uh, on the grasshopper when you go back in time in Jurassic period or something. And it, you know, the butterfly effect or whatever. Oh, that butterfly, that's right. Yeah, you step butterfly. on a butterfly. So I kind of like the cause and effect kind of thing. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I do too. I was glad it was there. I just, again, thought it was a little odd that they implied that there was some rift between McCoy and her. Right. And I'm hoping that they, you know, address it in some of their original stories, but I don't know if they will. I don't think they will. But who knows? Yeah. Maybe it's a thread we'll see again, but maybe not. Uh, I, I like the full. I like the drawing of the of the full uh, page panel where Gary's showing off his amazing new powers, and he's got uh, like nine different objects floating in the air around him. Yeah, and the, and the look on his face, and the grin, and the sparkling eyes. You know, I, I, it was cool. It was creepy. I liked it. Yeah, much better than the old TV show where a little cup, styrofoam cup, fly, flies to him on a string. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It, it seems like that Blu-ray isn't your friend. <laughs> In some areas, right? <laughs> <laughs> Did you notice that the wonderfulness? of Dyson designs have even survived to the, uh, to the future. Uh, which one are you talking about? <laughs> well, I, in, in that full page picture, uh, I was just mentioning about Gary showing his powers on the wall of the sick bay is what looks just like, um, well, almost just like a Dyson touchless hand dryer that you see in some of the, um, airports around the country. These days, oh, the little operating light. Is that what you're talking about? Operating light. No, it's on the wall. It's not floating around anywhere. Oh, not... oh, oh, I see what you're talking about. Yeah, like it, it yeah, I see what you're saying where you would stick your hand in it and the exactly. air blows down on the And the air sides. blows on it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, and who knows, maybe that's what that thing is supposed to be. Like, you know, you're going to you want to be sterilized or something, and sterilize your hand so it's a future version of it, but right. it looks a lot like a Dyson touchless hand dryer. Yeah, it does. I hadn't noticed that. Which is kind of interesting. <laughs> hey. Hey. Kind of makes you want to buy Dyson and Nokia products or stock. <laughs> They'll both be around in the future. Uh, yeah, apparently so. <laughs> I like when Gary gets his powers and he gets the jolt of energy from the barrier and the drawing that they did, uh, which kind of like shows his skull underneath his skin and everything when the electricity hits him. Yeah, on page 11. Exactly. I like that. I, I, I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, because you don't have video and special effects and things. That's I like the creativity of artists when they uh, find a cool way to kind of uh, make this stuff happen. Right. Yeah, and that was also one of my kind of beefs that the Galactic Barrier still just looks like a band. Uh, it's you know just a little bit wider than the Enterprise, <laughs> and you're just thinking, just go over it. <laughs> yeah, go around it. <laughs> Do something. Right. Yeah, I, I know why, what you mean. I know why you mean. Fly, fly straight into the big wall when you could just fly over or under it? Exactly. But yeah, it it, it kind of looks like it's along the ecliptic plane, and so you think you should you'd be able to go right over it, but no. Nah. <laughs> Good point. I thought it was interesting how Gary is Kirk's normal chess partner rather than Spock. That was very cool, because obviously in the original uh, show. 
it's a Spock and Kirk that are playing at the beginning of the story. Yeah, and we'll and I'll talk about this later, but I thought it was a little odd that they're still kind of bringing up that Spock and Kirk have this rift between the two of them based on, you know, the events that happened before Vulcan was destroyed, which I, at the end of the movie, I thought that they mended all their yeah, their fences, they but I thought they did. But in this issue, they kind well, of imply that, that they think Spock still has a grudge. And then especially in the third issue, McCoy really thinks that there's still a grudge there, which we'll talk well, about here in a second. in this issue, I thought it was just a joke. Oh, uh, well, you think so? I don't know. Yeah, what, what he's, he, he's angry about the Kobayashi Maru, or how I beat his Kobayashi Maru simulation or something. That comment? Yeah, right. I thought that was just a joke. Yeah, but, maybe. Uh, Maybe. Maybe. I'm done with my comments. All right, me too. Go right ahead. You're done too? Oh, I'm okay. done. All right. Cool. So we are moving on to issue number two, and that is my pleasure of synopsizing for you all. This one is uh, part two, where no man's gone before, October 2011. And everybody's the same, I believe, right? Yeah. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say them again. So this issue comes in four different cover flavors. The first one that my hard copy happens to be shows uh, Gary Lockwood, the original actor that played Gary Mitchell from the original uh, pilot. It shows his head within an Enterprise badge swoosh kind of thing, and then above is part of Spock's head in a profile shot, and of course that's Quinto. Below is a partial drawing of uh, Kirk's face, uh, Chris Pine. The second cover is uh, a Starfleet enlistment poster, another one. This one shows three Enterprises flying towards the viewer of the poster. So that's kind of cool, I like that one. The third cover is a black and white pencil drawing of the first cover. So that's okay, fine. Save a little money by using the same design again, but this one in black and white. Uh, And then the fourth cover is a publicity photo of Spock on a planet with his landing party belt and equipment on. You know, maybe maybe it was a a, a shot of him on Vulcan from the original movie. And those are the four covers. Yeah, I agree. Uh, The weakest one is definitely the publicity shot of uh, Quinto uh, in the Spock outfit. So I have the the Enlist and Starfleet one Uh uh, as my hardcover or my hard copy. And what's funny is that the front cover is just that poster. There's nothing, or they're just that picture. There's no Star Trek issue number two anywhere on the cover. And then it's not until you flip the book over that you get another picture of that cross the final frontier, but a smaller one. And then above that is Star Trek issue number two, and then the barcode down at the bottom. Oh. So it's it's kind of cool that on the on those Enlist and Starfleet issues, the, the front cover is just that. There's There's no... <coughs> Star Trek logo or barcode until you get to the back. So it's a little different. Cool. So uh, the story opens as the Enterprise arrives at Delta Vega, where Kirk intends to get the ship's warp drive capabilities back and maroon his best friend, Gary Mitchell. Mitchell's encounter with the energy barrier at the edge of the Milky Way has turned him into a glowing-eyed Superman. As his new capabilities grow, his humanity seems to be shrinking. The danger posed to the ship and crew forces Kirk to make the most difficult decision of his young career. 
Kirk and Spock join McCoy in sick bay, where the good doctor is examining Gary. Kirk asks Gary what he would do in Kirk's place. He says he would probably do what Mr. Spock is thinking right now. Kill me while it's still possible. Gary shocks Kirk with white hot energy crackling from his hands. McCoy grabs Gary from behind and shoots him with a tranquilizer. McCoy says he pumped enough in him to knock out the Klingon Empire. McCoy says he hopes it's enough to get Gary down to the surface. On the planet, Kirk orders Scotty and Kelso to get started doing whatever they have to do to get the warp drive working again. In the meantime, Kirk and Spock will put Gary in the crew quarters and erect a force field to keep him there. Kirk says after that they are all leaving. Later, Mitchell wakes up in his prison and talks to Kirk and Spock. After their chat, Mitchell tells Kirk he should have killed him while he had the chance. And command and compassion is a fool's mixture. Mitchell walks through the force field and shocks Kirk and Spock into unconsciousness. Meanwhile, Kelso is talking via communicator to Scotty, who is on the ship installing the latest batch of crystals. The ship should be up and running soon, Scotty says. Gary enters the room and walks towards Kelso, who draws his phaser. Gary tells Kelso not to do it, but too late. Gary uses his godlike powers to force Kelso to point the phaser at his own head and pull the trigger. So much for friendship. Gary leaves the mining facility. Later, Scotty brings Kirk and Spock to consciousness. Scotty tells them Mitchell is gone and Kelso is dead. Kirk calls the ship and asks Sulu to get a fix on Mitchell's position. Kirk orders Spock and the rest of the landing party back to the ship while he goes to deal with what Mitchell has become. When Kirk catches up with Mitchell, he attempts to kill him with his trusty phaser rifle. The attack proves useless against the Superman. Rather than killing Kirk right away, Gary whisks him off to the Iowa bar where he got the snot knocked out of him by off-duty Starfleet ruffians in the 2009 movie. Gary tells Kirk he wasted his youth on farm girls and motorcycles while he, Gary, was at the Academy. Next, Gary whisks Jim off to Starfleet Academy where he was sweating out another tough exam that he might have failed without Gary's study help. Gary says Kirk wouldn't be in the captain's chair without his help and now Kirk wants to kill him? Kirk asks Gary to stop in a weak voice and Gary does. They are back in the barren desolation of Delta Vega. Gary says he will give Kirk a decent burial, then take over the Enterprise as its new captain. Until he gets bored with it, of course. Kirk says whatever Gary has become, he is no longer Gary Mitchell. And he can't let Mitchell leave the planet. At that, Mitchell tells Kirk to kneel, and he does so against his will. His hands clasp together in prayer to the god Mitchell. As the freshly minted god is ready to kill off his old friend, Spock unexpectedly comes up from behind and knocks Mitchell out with his patented Vulcan neck pinch. As Mitchell hits the ground, Kirk is able to scramble to his feet and grab the rifle. Kirk hesitates when Gary starts to come to calling Jim's name in a weak, vulnerable voice. One of Gary's eyes are back to normal, but only one. Kirk sees Gary is vulnerable 
and takes the opportunity, while he has it, to kill Gary. The threat is now over, but at a very high cost. As the Enterprise moves off, two black caskets labeled Mitchell and Kelso float at the edge of the Milky Way. Later, Spock enters a lonely conference room that only contains a brooding Captain Kirk. Spock reports on the ship's status. After a pause, he asks Kirk if he would like to play chess sometime. Kirk says that he would like that. Spock departs for engineering, leaving Kirk alone in a darkened conference room, thinking. The end. So what do you think of that conference room? Um, I think it's a cool conference room. It reminds me kind of of Next Gen. It looks a lot like the Next Gen. It does. Not like original uh, <laughs> Star Trek. Nope, not at all. <laughs> yeah, so instead of it being a windowless, bland room, it's, you know, it's, it's got nice windows and stuff, and it's, it's pretty. Right, and it doesn't have that weird triangle thing in the middle of the desk. Ah, I was going to mention the same thing, but <laughs> I, I, I skipped it, and you, you jumped on it. That's good. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no that, that's great. Yeah, right. So that was like a three-sided uh, monitor, right? Right. So everybody at the conference table, if they had needed to look something, look at something, every angle around the table could see it. Yeah, that, that's kind of cool. <laughs> I just thought it was funny. Yeah, I just thought, I thought that, I, I, obviously, that looks just like the uh, next-gen conference room. I just thought it was funny. Yeah, and I, you know... If you got a budget, I'd rather see something like that than the old uh, bland uh, TV series ones. Oh, absolutely. But, uh, yeah. So, yeah. Everything goes upscale. In the original movie, they did a lot of powwowing actually on the bridge. Were they ever in a conference room, per se? Yeah, they had, well, the one that had the little triangle um, thing in the, in, the, in the table. Well, okay, I'm talking, about, I'm talking about the movie, 2009 movie. Oh, 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 in the movie. No, they never did. Yeah, because they seem to be just on the bridge, you know, we're all with all the sheets of glass that you want to have in a place where you can go flying. Well, not only uh, the glass, but also the lights that shine straight into your eyeballs. <laughs> and flash every few seconds. Because nothing makes Gosh, you work harder than having lasers beaming you in the eyeball. Yeah, I would have eye strain if I was on that bridge. It was <laughs> way too bright. It was. It was ridiculous. And, and those flashes, if you know, every once in a while they have those little little flashes that come up while they're on the bridge. I really hope they don't do that again. You know they will. Oh, God, I hate that. I mean, what's the point? I mean, really, what's the point of that? Oh, there was no point. I, mean, I know it's supposed to be just like, like a bit of um, a film. Uh, it's a film gimmick. Yeah. And, just... and, a, and apparently Abrams loved it. I just, there well, just didn't seem to be any practical purpose that would go along with the story. No, nope. it was just pretty. Sorry. But I didn't even pretty, think it was that pretty. It was just distracting for me. It was. I mean, it was kind of cool at first, but then when I really started noticing it, it was like, that's annoying. Stop doing that. Oh, you keep doing it. Stop it. Okay. Whatever. Anyway. But your mention about the glass panels all over the place, it, those look cool, but you're absolutely right. They're completely impractical. Impractical. So, Dangerous. But of course, I'm sure it's not glass. It's some kind of amazing uh, clear transparent aluminum or something so <laughs> that Scotty created far uh, you know at some point yeah and 
I mean, if you think too hard about that ship, there was so much stuff that was impractical, like the like the big water turbine tubes and engineering. And oh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. uh, just just well, watch the scene be... and go with it. Don't don't exactly, think too hard. Exactly. Don't think too hard. So was that supposed to be coolant or something? Is that what that's supposed to be? I don't know what don't it was. Know. That's but uh... there was like a fan blade in the middle of it that was about to chop up. Yeah. <laughs> Scotty, wasn't Scotty, it? Scotty, yeah. It's like, well, why would they put that there? You know, it's <laughs> like, like from uh, Galaxy Quest. Galaxy Quest. <laughs> I'm going to kill the writer. That's right. Those, 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 those huge smashing things that would come down. What, what practical purpose is this? Who would put this here? Anyway. Exactly. Okay, I'm just going to get on my my quick high horse. Okay, go for about it. About just retreading stories. Okay, so this is an excerpt from my mini-review that is posted on our site. But I also added to it a little bit. So I'll try to make this quick. Okay, so I have mixed feelings about the retreading of the original TV series stories. If you do it right, by bringing out something truly new in the retelling, that's great. But if you don't, it's just a retread of stuff that we've all seen before. Where is the added value to justify the cost of the comic? Marvel did an excellent job in retelling The Cage episode from the new perspective of Yeoman Colt. Love that. This comic and the previous comic changes some things, but it's mostly the original story with a few surprises. Anyway, so very high quality comic. I just hope they don't do too much of this. And I just had a quick listing of things that are new, uh, which I guess I'll just say quickly, but you, you, you've pointed out some of them. Uh, definitely McCoy's presence, which explains why Dr. Daner's not there. It's Spock, not Daner who ends up putting the superhuman Gary into a position to allow Kirk to kill him. The visuals, of course, go with the 2009 movies. That's different. Different actors, new Enterprise's design. Mitchell being Kirk's normal 3D chess partner, not Spock. Kelso shoots himself in the head with a phaser, rather than Gary levitating a power cable around his neck to choke him to death. Oh, the fact that Kelso is not manning a jury-rigged self-destruct switch in this comic, as opposed to the original TV episode. That was an interesting difference. I'd forgotten Uh, about that. You're right. So that was more of a reason for Gary to kill Kelso. And that's why he did it, to keep him from flipping the switch and blowing everybody up uh, with a jury-rigged nuclear device or whatever it was. So he had less of a reason to kill Kelso. But I guess the fact he was pointing a phaser at him, I guess that was enough. But, But he could have easily disarmed him, but whatever. He's God now. He doesn't care about his old buddies. And in this one, only Gary is affected by the energy barrier. Uh, without Dr. Daner around, apparently no one else on the bridge has a high enough aspirating, I guess, to be affected by the barrier. Well, the other nine people died. Well, okay, good point in the original TV series. Did they say that in the comic? Yeah. Did they? Oh. Yeah, they said it in the first issue. Okay, missed that one. Uh, but still, no one else became Superperson. Now, remind me, in the original series, Daner didn't have powers at the beginning. Gary gave them to her, didn't he? No. They developed later. Okay, okay. So, Gary had the highest ESP rating of anybody in the ship. And Daner was, like, second highest. And I don't remember them ex- explicitly saying it in the original episode, but maybe those other people had Esper ratings, but not as high as those two. I don't know. And so they just burned out and died? I, I guess. Yeah. I don't remember them going into huge detail. 
uh, Gary taking Kirk on a tour of uh, the Iowa Bar and the Starfleet Academy. That was new, but it kind of seemed like filler to me. I mean, they really didn't need to do that. I mean, the only reason he showed him all that is just to underscore how much Kirk owes Gary, and now you want to kill me? It's like, okay, whatever. Yeah, I thought it was, um, in, in the original show, isn't it Daner who makes the the plants and stuff that's in this one? Or does Gary make it for her in, in the uh, original series? Gary make the Kefarian apples? Yeah. Gary makes the, that. orchard. Gary makes that plant. Um, in the original series. In the original series. Okay. Right. And he makes it here, of course, because he's the only one with powers. Right. I don't remember Daner creating things per se, but maybe she did. Okay. But in the original series, Gary makes the grave for Kirk. Definitely. Yes. That says James R. Kirk. Oh, did it say R? Oh, how interesting. Ha ha! Very interesting. I never noticed that before. Oh, really? Ha 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 ha. Yeah, a little uh, little continuity change between the pilot and the actual series. Right, and, and, you know, we were both big fans of Peter David and Michael Jan Friedman. Right. And both of them in different novels have made nods to that typo and uh and <laughs> typo and, and stone <laughs> in the uh michael jan friedman books there's like an inside joke between kirk and gary while they're in, in starfleet academy uh-huh. i think it's the brothers keepers books i think we've talked about them before but throughout those books uh they're always kind of joking what kirk's middle name is because kirk kirk i think like butts in to something that he's not supposed to and gary calls him James Rhinoceros Kirk, and it's oh, kind of like an inside joke that I got it. Throughout these three books, there's he's he keeps getting different middle names that all start with R. Ah, cool. And that's why Gary does that. And then I think in the Peter David book, I can't remember. There's a book called Q Squared, yeah, which is really good. It has a uh, Trelane and Q, and they talk about how these powers that that they get in in this book is Q powers. But anyways, he has a reference there, too. I can't remember what it was, but but they make reference to it being R versus the correct T. I'm sure it was it was a joke, and I can't remember what it is. Oh. But go go find that book, read it, and then you can tell me what the joke was. Yeah, get right on that. But if it's Peter <laughs> David, you know it was probably pretty funny. Yeah, exactly. Anyways, but yeah, uh, there was I wanted to see the typo here, but he did, he went a different route. Exactly. Doing like almost like a Ghost of Christmas Past type thing. Mm-hmm. And now, and I always thought it was kind of hokey when he was able to crush him with the rock. Because when Gary attempts to come out of the grave in the original show, he's got his eyes back. And then, you know, with Kirk shooting up at the, the big rock, which is going to be the, uh, the, the capstone for the, the grave... He falls back in, and then the rock comes down and crushes him. It's like, if you got that many God-like powers, I mean, just stop the rock. I mean, come on. you got telekinesis, right? Come on, Luke. Use the force. Yeah, but didn't they have a scene similar to this where he didn't have his powers, and he asked Kirk to kill him? <clears throat> uh, briefly, yes. Okay. When Daner was shocking him. Okay. Dan- when, yeah, Daner was shocking him, and that gave Kirk enough time to go and grab the phaser rifle. But... I'm pretty sure that when 
when Gary is, uh, you know, by the grave, he, he's got his eyes back again. Oh, okay. But, all right. It's been a long time since I've seen the episode. I could be wrong, but I think I'm right. I always thought that was kind of odd. But So any other differences that you wanted to point out in your list? No, there's more, but, you know, uh, that that's all. I just, I just listed the seven. Gotcha. Uh, since we're talking about the confrontation between Kirk and Gary there at the end, I love seeing the Chris Pine version of Kirk doing the pleading thing where he, you know, where Gary's making him fall to his knees and doing the begging thing. Right. And you could almost see, you know, Chris Pine doing the overacting that Shatner did. <laughs> yeah, but back then in the early in the early uh episodes and especially in the pilot, I I think the Shat does a great job of for the most part doing just a good acting job, not overacting. Well, that that whole thing where he's getting pushed to his knees and stuff, I mean that's a little bit. That was over the top. No, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't go that far. Okay. Now Season two and three, especially season three. Oh, he's all over the... He's Oh, the shat's on, man. <laughs> but in these early episodes, you know, before maybe before he feels quite as uh, as comfortable in the role and stuff, I think he does a great job. I mean, I, of real acting. I, and, not, and not letting himself go over the top, usually. Well, okay. Well, I'm not trying to imply that I didn't like it. I'm just saying that that one scene always sticks out at <laughs> me where he's screaming and doing the clasping of the hands to do the 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 praying look there right. on his knees. I I mean, I think we've talked about it in other episodes where that's that's an iconic shot and it's usually poking fun at uh at Kirk's acting. Yeah. Uh Shat's Shat's acting, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's all I have to say about this issue. Oh, wow. You knocked it all in one shot. I did. Well, I did, I did a lot of talking. <laughs> oh, actually, I have one thing to say. All right, go it. ahead. I hate the phaser rifle. <laughs> that's right. Go ahead. Okay, so, yeah, you know this from my, my online review. I hate this phaser rifle. In the way that you hate the, the pistol, I even more hate the phaser rifle because... The original phaser rifle from this episode is as schlocky as it is, and the fact it's got a little radar dish in the front of it, kind of like on the front of the Enterprise, in the front of it, and that's where the, the laser comes out, phaser beam comes out. It is just iconic. It is one of the coolest sci-fi props, in my opinion, ever. And so you've got a high, as far as I'm concerned, there's a high bar to, to reach here, and they falls so terribly far below it. I just hate that the look of the phaser rifle. It like garbage. They could it's, have done so much better. Yeah, it's very smooth. Well, yeah. And boring. I mean, it's boring. <laughs> it does have that weird dial thing that right there in the middle that looks like it might be a hinge of some sort. Yeah, it does look like that. Is that supposed to be for the shoulder stock or something? I don't know. I don't know. What is it? I mean, yeah. if it's a selector dial... You know, for like stun and kill and stuff, it's too way too big. Well, plus, how does the uh, the end of the the phaser rifle How's it spin flip? around? How, it doesn't flippy. It doesn't <laughs> do the flippy. That's funny. So, so the bottom line is, uh, if they have a phaser rifle, or when they finally get a phaser rifle into the uh, one of the movies, 
Please do not have it look like that. Please. JJ, uh, please. <laughs> you think he's listening? I, Of course. He's, he, he's a geek. No, he's not <laughs> listening. He's not listening. No. You he's, never he's know. A bu- oh, he's a busy know. man. He's a busy man. Well, I think you hit all the things that I was going to say with the exception of the uh, – I, I enjoyed the inside joke about Delta Vega being the planet oh, that, that Scotty spent so much time on. Uh, no, oh yeah, no, you're right. You're right. right yeah, in that, in that outpost. In the oh. movie, Scotty was on the outpost with uh, Kinsler, Kinsner, and uh, old Spock and and Kirk showed up and got him off. But I just <laughs> thought it was funny that they they made reference to it in this that the uh, the the planet was also Delta Vega. I, bad enough, planet. bad enough that you can see Vulcan. From Delta, Delta Vega, you know, it, it crushing and whatever. Bad enough that that's going on, that the two planets are that close to each other. I mean, it looks like a moon. The Vulcan looks like a moon of Delta Vega or something. It's so, so stinking close. That's bad enough. But all those things happen to, to land on Delta Vega. And it's not even a, an original name. Yeah. <laughs> and did they do that purposely? I mean, you know, did... did did the writers like go? Hey, you know, I always love the name Delta Vega. Let's let's call it that. I'm sure they did it as an homage to the first. I mean, this was in essence a pilot of a new TV right. series, a uh, new movie series, and right. I think that was a nod to the uh, the pilot of the original series. Yeah, I- I'm guessing. Absolutely, right. I have no basis of that. Yeah, I-, I tend to think so too. I mean, why else would they do that? I mean, you know, they're original guys; they can make up things. Come on. But I do like how the, the comic book kind of pokes fun at that a little bit. Right. And at least they said, another Delta Vega. Right. All right, I'm anything else? the same place. No, that's it. I'm done. Okay. I'm done with that one, man. All right, let's jump into issue number three, the Galileo 7 part one. Everybody's the same. Yep. Isn't it? Uh. I, I think, think there's an so. extra artist, isn't there? Uh, oh, you're right. Uh, Stephen Molinar and Joe Phillips. Yeah, so Joe so Phillips is the extra guy. Right. And uh, and this teleplay, the original teleplay, was by Oliver Crawford and Simon Winselberg. Ah. That's different as well. Wow, that's interesting. I knew about Samuel A. Peoples writing the original pilot, but I did I never heard of these guys. Okay, cool. I do think it's funny that the out of all the um, scripts that were... Uh, submitted for the the second pilot. Mm-hmm. Gene Roddenberry had two of them, and Simon Peoples or Samuel Peoples had this one, and mm-hmm. and they chose that one as as the one to go for with the uh, pilot, right? And not one of Gene's. Well, one of them became the Omega Glory, and that was not one of my more favored episodes. What was the other script? Do you know? Oh, I don't know off the top of my head. Uh-uh. Well, <coughs> sorry. If they would have went for the Omega Glory, I think that would have been a bad choice. Was it that the minor one? The one that has what the, the Omega? Is that oh. what the Omega Glory is? No, no I'm that's trying to think of the other pilot. Oh, oh. Okay, but you remember the Omega Glory one, right? Uh, Remind uh, me. Okay, so the Omega Glory was the one where it's parallel Earth, but in this parallel Earth, um, the Chinese overwhelmed the West. 
Right, yeah, that's the one I'm thinking of. And the Yangs and the... Uh, what were the Chinese folks called? I forgot. But uh, the Yangs, uh, they even had the tattered uh, American flag and stuff. Right, at the end where they're right. running around with it like a cape kind of thing. <laughs> a cape? Well, They, they like... had it on a stick. I mean, they had it oh, on okay, a... is that what it was? Right. They brought it in with the, you know, on, a, on, a, on a stick. But yeah, that, you know, the whole parallel Earth thing... It's like, oh God, another parallel Earth one, like the Roman one, and 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 this one, the Omega Glory is like, oh, take a break. Anyway, and even Miri wasn't that was that supposed to be a parallel Earth? Well, maybe not. Now the the three the three um, scripts that were going to be the the second pilot was Omega Glory, yeah, Mud's Women, and oh. Where No Man Has Gone Before. Oh God, they made the right choice. <laughs> yeah, Mud's they, Women. Yeah, they said they did it to Omega Glory to kind of show Gene Roddenberry's parallel Earth concept. Right. Uh, and then they did. They were thinking about doing Mud's Women to show how they could do a shipboard tale using um, mostly sets on the ship instead oh. of uh, um, a lot of location Planets shooting. and that kind of stuff, right? Right, because right, they were reusing the sets built for the cage. I guess that makes sense, because if you were an investor, you would want to see that you could still make a good show without having to spend a lot of money on new sets. Right. So, anyways, I think they picked a good good one for the pilot because I'm not a big fan of those other two. Yeah, yeah. clearly the best. Uh, most action stuff going on. All right, so let's jump back into uh, issue number three. There's several covers. There's the first cover, which is Tim Bradstreet, which is the um, Star Trek logo, the... Um, Enterprise logo in the middle with McCoy and Scotty inside of it. And then kind of surrounding the logo is Spock's head. So you don't see his face because the logo is on top of his face, but you can see his ear on one side and his chin down below. And then about where Spock's chin is, you can see the Galileo 7 flying above the surface of the planet. And you can actually see the title, the Galileo 7 Part 1 on there. The uh, second cover is by Joe Corney, and it's the Enlist in Starfleet type format that we saw last month. It says, Go Boldly, Enlist in Starfleet, and the picture shows a cartoony-looking uh, Orion woman, and then behind her is a human male in a uh, science-type uniform, and then behind him is a... Uh, a, a Vulcan male doing the um, Live Long and Prosper sign in a gold uniform. And then the other two covers, there's a um, pencil drawing of the first one by Tim Bradstreet, and then there is a photo cover of Ahura standing on the bridge with all the lights shining straight into the uh, viewer's eyes. Ah! I know, right? Makes you blind looking at it. Yeah, Ahura's easy on the eyes. The lights behind her are not. Exactly. And the the cartoony one with the Orion girl, that miniskirt is short. <laughs> yeah, and uh, the Orion girl has a nice uh, thin shape to her. A little maybe kind of like Ahura, but uh, her face definitely does not look like Ahura. Right. But, uh, it... Well, she has a whitish nose, though. Eh, whatever. <laughs> okay. 
All right, so let's get into the story. So it starts off with the captain's log, uh, which informs us that the Enterprise is en route to Macus 3 with a cargo of medical supplies. The assignment is being overseen by Federation High Commissioner Ferris. The ship's course takes them close to an unexplored quasar-type formation, and Kirk is ordering a shuttle to fly over there and investigate. Ferris disagrees with Kirk's decisions to do this, stating that it is an unnecessary delay to their primary mission. Spock is in command of the Galileo, and he pilots the craft into the quasar. Uh, Actually, I think it's Spock's piloting along with the other guy whose name is Latimer. So they pilot the craft into the quasar. Uh, On the flight, Scotty comments that – or he's – speaking to the other six crewmen that are there in the cargo hold, that he's looking forward to some recreation. Spock coldly reminds him that this is a scientific mission and not recreational. Uh, The tiny craft gets caught up in some disturbance and is pulled off course. On the Enterprise, Ahura reports that the Galileo has gone missing. Chekhov reports that the ionization is preventing them from scanning for the craft. Ferris is upset about these events, smugly telling Kirk that this is exactly uh, why he was against this plan. Kirk orders the ship to travel to the nearby planet of Taurus II, hoping that perhaps the shuttle made it there as well. The shuttle has indeed made its way to the nearest inhabited planet and and makes a successful landing, and that's in quotes. Uh, It's successful only in that no one was injured or killed, but the shuttle is completely trashed. McCoy and Spock check on the other crew members, including a young woman named Yeoman Rand, making her first appearance in this series. Uh, Once everybody is checked out, Spock orders Latimer and Gitano to survey the land around the crash site. In orbit, the Enterprise cannot penetrate the planet's planet's atmosphere uh, due to the ionization. Kirk orders the shuttles to depart and do flyovers in search for the Galileo. Ferris again voices his displeasure with the delay to the primary mission. Back on the planet, McCoy has a sidebar with Spock. He tells him that he knows Spock resents Kirk and and that he thinks that Spock is using this event as his big chance to take over the big chair. Latimer and Gatano continue their investigation uh, of some surrounding rock formations um, with their phasers drawn. They start to hear a strange growling sound, and then suddenly Latimer is impaled with a giant spear. Hearing the scream, Spock and a few crewmen head over to Latimer's dead body. Spock is fascinated with the spear tip and how it matches Earth's own Stone Age tools, except that it's much larger. McCoy and the other crew lash out about Spock's coldness towards Latimer's cooling corpse. The crew regroup back at the shuttle, and Spock... Scotty informs them that the shuttle's power is completely lost. Just then, a strange, or just then, the strange growling begins to emanate around the shuttle. Uh, Gatano and the others want to take the offensive and start attacking the Stone Age creatures. Spock refuses, and he commands that they target the rock outcroppings around the crash site. They do so and are successful in scaring off the attackers. On the Enterprise, Ferris tells Kirk that he is going to take command of the Enterprise if they do not leave for Macus' system within the next 24 hours. 
on the planet, Scotty tells Spock that he can drain the phasers to give the shuttle enough power to make a short jump uh, into the air. It's not enough to break orbit, and it's not enough to take the full crew. Spock tells him to start making the changes, knowing that it will drain all of the phasers. He also informs their crew that if they do not get the Enterprise's attention fairly quickly, then they will be stranded on the planet for a very, very long time. To be continued in Episode 74 of Star Trek Comic Book Review, or you can just watch the episode and find out how you think it might end. There you go. So you can either wait three months to find out what we think about issue number four, or you can go buy it next month, or you could just watch watch the show. You got got lots of <laughs> lots, lots of options here. Watch the show. You mean the original show? The yeah, original the episode. Show. Yeah. Well, you know, anyone listening to this have has has seen <laughs> this and know what's going to happen. Right. And it should be interesting to see if the, what kind of spin they're able to put on it. That might be a little different. Now, I haven't seen Galileo 7 in quite a while, um, but I think this story follows that that one maybe closer than the Where No Man Has Gone Before followed the original. Am I right or am I wrong? Oh, I think you're right. It's pretty spot on. I don't remember Rand, though, being on the uh, Galileo 7 in the original TV series, though. Was she not? See, I didn't didn't remember. Maybe she was, but I don't remember her being on there. I did like seeing her in here, and I was going to make a comment of that. That I was—that was one of the things I thought they missed in the first movie—is that they didn't have Rand, right, or Nurse Chapel. So I'm glad to see her here. But the the way they depict her, she looks nothing like Rand in the show. I forgot what her name is. What is it? Grace Lee Whitney. Right. I actually have a signed autograph of her. Yeah, hang on my wall, right there next to you. Right. Well, it's not quite next to me, but yeah, it's up there a bit on the wall. <laughs> Grace Lee, baby. But did you like the way they depicted her here? Uh, it's fine, but you're right. I mean, her face, I mean, she's a blonde woman, of course, a uh, really nice build and everything. But, but she uh, looks like her 16 face years is, old. She does look young, but everybody looks young. I mean, it's like they went with a 20, 20-something-year-old 20 cast, True. but she does look really young. And I really don't like the hairstyle. <laughs> yeah, so well, her hair is in this really tight bun that like pokes yeah. out like a, a, a small little unicorn horn. Yeah, or or a really small version of Marge Simpson's hair. <laughs> well, Ensign Rand had a that kind of hairdo. It was just bigger. I'm sure she probably did. Yeah, this is just like a really tight beehive right at right. the back of her head. Where Yeoman Rand's hair definitely came up into almost a fez. <laughs> <laughs> almost a fez hairdo. Because that was kind of... Because I'm looking at the picture, and she's got the little fez hair thing. Fez yeah, that's, are cool. Fez, fezes are cool. Yeah. It's, it's, like, it's like a braided uh, beehive. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, that's right. It was braided up at the top. Uh, yeah. That's right. I forgot about that. So, yeah. I mean, this is reminiscent to that. It's just... Smaller. It's just really tight. Right. Something maybe not so obviously 60s. <laughs> Anyways, I just thought that was – I was happy to see her, and I'm wondering if, if this means she might be in the next movie and they already know what she might look like or just completely 
on their own. artist discretion on right. what what he thinks she might look like. Yep, uh, I think definitely the idea that uh, Spock got a girlfriend in the first movie. You know, maybe maybe Kirk will get his onboard romance in the second movie. Maybe, maybe. What do you think? Maybe, maybe. Well, maybe. I mean, he did hook up with the Orion girl in the first one. Well, of course, but that was at the the academy. And plus, he has many liaisons to uh, come, I'm sure. However, you know, the regular shipboard, you know, thing. Right. For eight episodes, and then something happens. <laughs> to make leave. In the exact, but they never, they yeah. never explained that, did they? No, they never explained. No, she just, she just started not showing up anymore. Right. I think they explain it in some of the expanded universe stuff that he encouraged her to go to take command of something else. Oh, encouraged right. her to further her career. Oh, yeah. But Rather yeah, none of that's on, none of that's on screen. Yeah. What do you think about the other fair lady in the uh, episode and how she looks different now? The Galileo Seven. Oh, you know what? I didn't even pay that much attention. Well, she looks a lot more like some of the ships in. The movie, of course, naturally, but she is a bit different and updated from the uh, original <laughs> tight budget TV show version. Well, doesn't it look exactly like that shuttle from the movie? It does. Yeah. Okay. Well, they they had a couple shuttles in the movie, but it definitely looks like um, looks like the one that he got on on Earth to go back up to san francisco to start up starfleet right? right is it is it that big yeah i think it is yeah because there's pretty big like inside 20 people inside of it right uh well definitely in the movie right right of course he doesn't have it they don't have that many people here but they they sit the same way too right like along the edges right right okay so it's very much like that so the na- one thing i found kind of different is the nacelles instead of being low and attached uh, on kind of like a pylon coming out of the side, they're actually directly attached to the top rear of the uh, fuselage. Exactly. And you know yeah. why that's there? Why? So that you can press it and you'll hear a little voice say, Pike to Enterprise or something like that. There was <laughs> a uh, McDonald's is... Happy Meal toy and it was that little shuttle. And uh-huh. you could push in the engines on the top and it would it would... Have a little clip from the oh, movie. That is so cool. So you have that? Wow, it's so cool. Of course I have it, kid. <laughs> <laughs> you think I got kids for nothing? Heck yes. I took what's, it. I took it from them. What's funny is that a good couple of years after that that movie came out, every once in a while I'd be in the front seat driving, and then I would hear I would hear that that going off in the back with the kids in the car seat and somehow they would have that thing again and they would start pressing it over and over and over again. (laughs) (laughs) That's cool. But anyways, I digress. Yeah. Keep, keep going. I I like, I like the shuttle. Yeah. So do I. And the, um, so where the pot, where the, where the struts were that connected the, the nacelles, uh, that's a wing. It's, it's a wing. So, uh, I guess that's to help them when they're in atmosphere, I guess. Because it does look like a wing. It's pretty stubby, though. Which makes sense. Yeah. And it gets sheared off when they do their crash landing. I mean, that, that wing gets completely ripped off. Yep. Indeed. Uh, let's see. So I thought that was kind of a, kind of cool. Uh, um, I love 
I love the I love early in the issue. Speaking of shuttles, um, when they're departing the shuttle bay, I love the interior shots of the shuttle bay. It's just huge, um, and you can even see some of the slots where they've got the uh, shuttle, other shuttles, um, stored. So I think that's yeah, they're kind cool. of on shelves, ready to go. Exactly. They're, they're, they're on a shelf, exactly. <laughs> Where, you know, on the original series, when they did show the shuttle bay, it was like, it seemed like it wasn't that big. And, you know, you'd only see one of those shuttles at a time. And did they ever show where they come from? I don't no. think they did. No, they just opened up the door and the shuttle was there and it took up pretty much the whole shuttle bay. It, it right, out. right. So where are the rest of the shuttles? I don't know. Yeah, I think but, they, uh, uh, they build them as they need them. <laughs> that's it that's amazing so yeah so maybe part of the reason now of course the the new enterprise is supposed to be massive compared to the old original version right so this is something we did we ever mention this before in the series uh, on the show uh i can't maybe remember I, well I, i'm not i'm not going to dwell on it but the main point is we saw there was a drawing somewhere on the web we had gotten our hands on it and they showed a drawing of the new enterprise compared to um the old enterprise i think there was even battlestar galactica in the picture somewhere or something like that yeah it was it was several different um famous stars <coughs> and, and right. the new enterprise was much bigger than any oh, of the other man. ones it was huge Absolutely huge. I mean, it was even bigger than the Enterprise E, I think. Yeah, which is a big ship, mighty big. Right. So I, I I've always, you know, because I'm a, I'm a fanboy. I always try to figure out why in that new universe the the Enterprise was so much bigger. Yeah. So I, I like to think that when the the Narita came and destroyed the um, Kelvin. That mm-hmm. they scratched, they just threw out their old plans for the uh, Constitution mm-hmm. class, and they they made something bigger to to combat that Romulan Borg hybrid ship. <laughs> okay, that's why the Enterprise is so much bigger, and why it gets commissioned so much later than the original Enterprise did. Huh? Huh? A super mega Constitution class starship. Yeah. So you had like Admiral April. There on the drawing plans, and then he's like, "Oh man, we got to we got to go bigger, go bigger, go home." <laughs> Anyways, well, I'm kind of wondering if they just did more work in making things proportional. So they actually said, um, you know, if the Kelvin has to have enough shuttles aboard to, you know, carry the majority of the crew to safety then you know, you're kind of setting a precedent that uh, starships carry a lot of uh, shuttles. And that, I mean, rather than having uh, like ejection pods like all the, the, the TV shows ones did, I mean, at least all the next gen and those kind of things, they all have uh, ejection pods and stuff for people to be picked up. In this new reboot, uh, ships tend to have a lot of shuttles to take people off. Then, well, you got to put all those shuttles somewhere. So maybe you have to make the whole ship proportionally bigger to to support all that. I don't know. That's a good point. I, I just thought they needed a reason why they needed, uh, you know, four foot wide water tubes. <laughs> well, engineering's big. It is big. It's big, baby. It's not. It wasn't that big though. 
in the original series. It was just one little oh, no. room with a little <laughs> weird uh, grating. Well, at least it was one of the few places that actually had more than one uh, floor. At least they had that much going for them. Did they have more than one floor in the original series? Uh, parts of engineering, yes. Okay. So especially if you'll remember the great fight of Khan right. and, uh, and Kirk right. in, in engineering, that was multiple, you know, multiple floors in height. Huh. I only remember that being on one floor. And it was uh, the same place where Kirk fights uh, the, the drunk guy <coughs> uh, who's taken over the ship. Yeah. Uh, what was his name? O'Grady. No, it was, it was singing Riley? the Riley. 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 Yeah. Riley. Anyways. Yeah. It, now I'm not actually saying that there are multiple physical floors. I'm saying that it's really tall. Oh, okay, okay. You know, really tall room. Well, they had that painting kind of in the back to make it look like it kept going. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yes. But I'm saying the room that they're in is a really big, tall one in the original series. Gotcha. So, I'm with you now. So at least they did that much. Um, and even Next Gen. Uh, well, Next Gen and, and, and Voyager always had multiple rooms. Multiple, multiple rooms and multiple floors. With the little elevator. Right, and catwalks and whatever. Exactly. Enterprise, but, too. But still, nothing was as big as the movie. Well, they the had movie. more money to throw at it. Right. More blue, more blue and green screens. So, um, non-related to the ship, this is the issue that I thought had a weird conversation between McCoy and Spock where they're implying that there's this animosity between Spock and Kirk that I really thought all that got sorted out at the end of the movie. So I'm surprised that they're, they keep bringing it up here. Well, is that part of McCoy's just, you know, jabbing at uh, Spock kind of thing? I don't know, but it seems, I mean, in the TV show, he always jabbed at him as being a green-blooded goblin and all that other stuff. Not not saying, oh, you want to take over the ship and this crisis is going to somehow help your nefarious plans. It just seemed odd. That whole scene there in this book just seemed really weird to me. Right. It, it didn't to you? It didn't strike you as odd? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Mm. I mean, what what, ha- what happens to that warm, fuzzy, you green-blooded hobgoblin? I love that. <laughs> All right, what else you got? Something I thought was interesting is Commissioner Ferris. The way they drew Commissioner Ferris's face in this comic is very close to the original actor. Especially in certain panels. So, like close-ups? Um, close-ups. Okay. So, uh, unfortunately, uh, in this issue, they don't have... Most pages don't have page numbers. At least the ones I bother looking at. But the third page from the end, in the second panel from the bottom, the close-up of uh, Ferris's face is dead ringer for the original actor. Huh. Okay. I can't remember what he looks like, so I'll take you. Well, mind. when I saw it, I said, hey, you know, that looks really familiar. I mean, that, that, that might be the guy. And I went ahead and looked him up on Memory Alpha, and indeed, that's the guy. So that is the original actor. And also, his, uh, his tunic, his, his uniform outfit, or, well, he's civilian, so I guess he doesn't have a uniform per se, but it's the same shirt, tunic, 
except that it is blue in the TV show, and for some reason they made it uh, white in the comic book. So the way the collar is, the way the piping is, you know, in the in the shirt is is the same thing. Huh, that's cool. Yeah, so that's kind of cool that they that they did that. Of course, not on not on all of the panels does he look exactly like the original actor, but in this one he does. Third page right. from the end. Anyway, I thought that was kind of interesting because I recognized him, and it seemed like, like so. It's like Gary Mitchell. It's like you know, sometimes sometimes they make him look just like the original actor. Sometimes they don't. Not quite sure of the uh, rhyme or reason to it. Huh, that's weird. Yeah, I'm not that familiar with the episode that I wouldn't have recognized him. Also, uh, the drawings of the Quasar-like uh, Murasaki 312 formation, you know, it it, it kind of makes it look dangerous and intimidating, you know, uh, at the beginning of the, uh, right. of the comic. And it's like, did I miss it, or did they explain why they sent a shuttle, <laughs> shuttle into it? It looks a little dangerous, and they're sending a shuttle into it, and... Then when the shuttle gets into trouble, they say, "Oh, we'll just we'll just we'll just fly up to the, the, the you know we're just going <laughs> to fly to the planet." It's like, well, if you could have flown to the planet, then why did you send a shuttle in, a more fragile shuttle in? Whatever. Don't think too hard about it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What's funny is that in the original series, wasn't that Quasar thing green? Oh. Uh, I don't remember. Maybe. I mean, I don't remember it being a spirally red thing. Well, I, I yeah. I don't remember. Huh. I don't remember. I just kind of remember it being a green, you know, like like a lot of things, was just kind of this nebulous, smoky look. But for whatever reason, I keep thinking green. Yeah, it might have been. I meant, I, mean, to wa- I meant to watch that episode, but I've been so busy with work that uh right. didn't have time to... uh Pop in the DVD. Oh, there you go. And the way you look at it, the special effect from the uh, 60s would have been poor. Odds are. And I wonder what the remastered one looks like. Good point. Um, I could really look at it, but it would take time. Because I've got the no, remastered it's one on It's not computer, that. It's, it's good. I'll try to watch it before we do the recording for issue number four. Yeah. Definitely the remastered where, mo- <clears throat> where No Man Has Gone Before. Uh, definitely made the uh, ba- the energy barrier at the edge of the gra- galaxy look a lot better. Did it still look like just a a, a wall that was just slightly lo- taller than the Enterprise? <laughs> I think I think there was a spot, even in the remastered one, where it still seemed like it wasn't that tall. <laughs> uh, but I think the other shots were more like it, it covered up the whole screen. Gotcha. But, yeah. <laughs> Eh, All right, what else you got? When the pilot, Latimer, is uh, speared in the back, and he's got, like, blood all over him and stuff, all the blood's black. And then, of course, the the spear that has the blood all on the on the tip of it, it's all black. And I, I do know that what is that must be some kind of comic book law or something, some kind of convention that they don't show red blood or something. I just thought, even given that, I still thought it looked kind of funny. I don't think that's... The case. I mean, oh, okay. So why do they make it black? I don't know. I mean, this, this comic book is rated PG thirteen. So, it, oh, they got ratings on these things. Yeah, if you look at the um, the page. the barcode, yeah, it'll say 
who the intended audience is, and this one says huh. not intended for children under 13. Okay. So I mean, well, even, in that case, even why, in the, is it, why is it yeah, black? They, I don't know. Just an artistic choice. Okay. It seems like a bad one. <laughs> right. And I do think it's funny that it goes straight through him on one page, and then on the next panel, you know, he's laying on his face, and, you know, the spear's not going through the ground. So it's like sticking out of his back as if the spear was still in his chest somewhere. Oh. Whereas in the previous page, so. you can see that it goes straight through his whole body. Right. So maybe when he fell right. forward, right. he pushed it back into his body. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, or it's very soft ground and it uh, <laughs> it went subterranean. It I just don't know. embedded. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think you're completely right about that. It's more like he should be like sideways, and the and the spear is going to be like on an, on a weird angle. Yeah, right. And he'd be kind of half propped up. It, right. It, it would make it a more gruesome picture. Right. I assumed that they were just going for the way it looked in the original show, but I, like I said, I didn't go back and rewatch it. Right. Definitely, if you're going to get a spear go through your full, it's going to be mess. It's going it, to be a bloody mess. It is. It's not just going to be a little bit of black liquid on the on the tip of the giant spear. No. And if I was the uh, the guy with Latimer, the red shirt with Latimer, I would just be lighting up the sky with my phaser, man. <laughs> Woof! He's pretty freaked out. He's pretty freaked out. He's, you know, hey, you're supposed to be security, buddy. Come on, let's go. Yeah, Latimer's just the pilot. This guy right. is the security guy. Yeah, the, the red shirt guy, right. 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 There's other red shirts there. I don't know why he's why Spock sent one of the pilot I know. security exactly. duty. It's like, you know, Latimer, you did a great job bringing the ship down and not killing us all. Why don't you go out and uh, <laughs> do some scouting? <laughs> you know, for the effort. Yeah, as a reward. You didn't kill us, but I sure as hell kill you. Go on uh, out there. <laughs> That's funny. That's all I have to say. All right, cool. All right, so next episode we'll be doing, episode 62, will be our first annuals. So we'll do the Star Trek, the original series annual, and Next Generation annual that came out in 1989 or 1990 by George Takei and John Delancey. I'm looking forward to those. Yeah, they should be good. I guess real quick we should do the Expanded Universe. This is very recent, and it's in a time where there wasn't a lot of Star Trek memorabilia being produced. So just real quick, uh, each month had a novel that came out. So in September of 2011, there was an original series novel called The Choice of Catastrophes by Steve Moleman and Michael Schuster. Uh Uh, And and this is one where Sulu gets command of the Enterprise – because Kirk's off on a mission, and uh, a lot of folks are falling into comas, and McCoy has to try to figure it out. So it's a, basically a McCoy episode. Huh. Um, October had a Vanguard novel called What Judgment Comes by Dayton Ward and Kevin Dilmore. Uh, this is the seventh book of the Vanguard series, and uh, part one of the two-part conclusion to the series. So they're ending the series, and this is the first of the uh, finale. Uh, Vanguard, in case you forgot, was uh, it's based during the original series timeline, and is just its own set of books. Hmm. 
And then last November 2011, the new Enterprise novel came out. It's part two of the Romulan War series called To Brave the Storm by Michael A. Martin. Last year, around this time, book one came out called Beneath Raptor Wings, which these two books are depicting the um, the big Earth-Romulan war hmm. that was kind of alluded to um, in the last season of Enterprise. Uh, so I haven't read the book yet. I'm, this is one I'd really like to read, uh, but I haven't read the first one. I want to read both of them. And I think there's supposed to be a third one, and it probably won't come out for another year. I love Enterprise. Yes. Big Enterprise fan. Interesting yeah. time period in the Federation. Exactly, right? I mean, it would make a good season of a TV show. I wish they would have kept the show going. <laughs> anyway, so that's it. So I guess we'll be back next week. Same bat time, same bat channel. Looking forward to it. All right. Take care. Bye, everybody. And thanks for joining us on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Episode 61. There you go. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.stcomicbookreview.com. Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name, stcomic, second name, book review. See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review. Let's get the hell